John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to Him and cried, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for He was before me. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. I want you to ascend with me a flight of five stairs toward Christmas reality. The bottom level we'll start is the invisibility of God, and the top level to which we're heading is the receiving this morning, the actual receiving of grace upon grace from Jesus Christ. These five steps in the flight of stairs are all right here in the text that Randall just read in verses 14 to 18. And I want to take them now one at a time. So step number one, the bottom level, is this. God is invisible. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. And I want to reflect for a moment on the invisibility of reality. What fools we can make of ourselves sometimes about what we say, about what we can't see. Chris Chernholm, who's uh, one of the representatives, gave me a copy of a video sent to him by the Fund for the Feminist Majority in California called Abortion for Survival. It's a video that makes a passionate plea 
for abortion as an absolutely indispensable element in birth control, especially in third world countries. And in it is portrayed the manifold miseries that multiple unwanted pregnancies bring, especially among the poor. And I wondered as we as a staff watched this the other day, if they'd ever show the reality of the unseen child. And they didn't. The tacit assumption was that it didn't exist. And the reason was you you can't see it. And the evidence that that was the main argument was this. Two times in the video, they took a syringe full of bloody material and squirted it into a bowl and said, this is the result of an eight-week abortion. Hardly a child. Which is a little bit like getting your finger caught in a meat grinder and then watching what comes out and saying, oh, I guess it wasn't a finger after all. No big deal. We don't have to wonder what a baby at eight weeks looks like. We know what it looks like. It's not this big. It's only about an inch. But it looks like this. Or cuter here. Nobody has to be ignorant of this unseen reality unless they want to be. It's very significant invisibility, however, because it contributes to the faith that the child is not there or is insignificant. It's like the uh, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, 1961, first Russian into space. When he got out there, what he, remember what he said? I don't see any God. Implication being, so there's no God. Verse 18 presents us, therefore, with a challenge and a problem. No one has ever seen God. So is there a God? So how can you know God? So what is God like if he's like unborn babies and invisible in space? That's level number one. God is invisible. Level number two. Before God revealed himself in the Lord Jesus, he revealed himself in the law of Moses. Before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus, he revealed himself in the law of Moses. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the key question there is, is John picturing the law in contradiction with grace in Jesus? This is law and this is grace. This is law and this is gospel. I don't think so. I don't think the law is ungracious and untruthful and Jesus is gracious and truthful. I think rather that what he's saying is before the reality, the embodiment of grace and truth came, there was a witness to grace and truth. A preliminary pointer to grace and truth in the law. 
Well, let me show you from a few passages in John why I think this is the case. Why I think in John's mind, the law, Moses, is not contradictory to Jesus and grace. First, John 3.14. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it is not an ungracious or an untruthful thing to lift up a serpent in the wilderness which can heal you if you will bow and humbly rely upon the grace of God manifest in that symbol. That's grace. That's true. But it's not the goal. It's not Jesus. It's pointing. It's a foretaste. Second text, John 5, 46 Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, that doesn't sound like a contradiction, does it? He wrote of me. If you believed him, you'd believe me. There's continuity. If you were here, you'd be here. You'd understand. If you were there, if you really had the spirit of Moses in the law, you'd bow before me and embrace me. I finished the law. I don't contradict the law. Third text. John 6.32 Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, in the context, what that means is this. Moses gave manna. That is, he was the instrument of God to bring the manna. And the manna was good. The manna was grace to these rebellious, murmuring, cantankerous Israelites in the wilderness. Every day, grace upon grace coming down. But it wasn't the living bread from heaven. It was a little foretaste of what was to come. So the point of verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and peace came through Jesus Christ is that the law was a preliminary, inadequate pointer towards something far greater, a greater fulfillment, namely the embodiment of Grace and truth, which had been hinted at and pointed to and offered in measure back then. It comes in its fullness in Jesus Christ. So the second step in our five-step flight to Christmas is that, first, God is invisible. Second, before he reveals himself in the Lord Jesus, he reveals himself in the law. Step number three, God became human. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to hear the full force of the the word became flesh, you have to go back to verse one, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, bring that down to verse 14. The word was God. The word was made flesh. Therefore, blank was made flesh. Fill it in. What? God. Come on, you Aristotelians. You're supposed to... Let's try that again now. God was the Word, or the Word was God. The Word became flesh, therefore blank became flesh. Who's that? God. God became flesh. 
God became flesh. God became a person. Jesus was a man, a human, and Jesus was deity. He was God. That's the third step in rising. Now look at this next phrase. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that little, little word dwelt there in Greek is to pitch a tent, set up a tent, skenao. And I, I thought up until yesterday at about 2 o'clock that that meant uh, he came temporarily. Because I thought, well, that's what a tent means, temporary. When you go on a camping trip, you don't take your house, you take a tent because you're not going to stay more than a week or so. And then you lay there and you come back, put it in the garage. Tent means temporary, right? Wrong. And the reason I found out this is wrong is because I looked up all the places where John and the New Testament uses skenao, pitch a tent. And you know what I found? It, it never implies tempor- temporariness. And in fact, one place it can't mean temporariness. For example, in uh, Revelation 21.3, which is also written by John, it says, now remember what's happening here. Um, the new heavens, uh, the city of God is coming down and you got the new heaven and the new earth. God is going to be with men forever, not temporarily. And it says, behold, the dwelling skene tent of God is with men. He will dwell with them, pitch his tent with them, and they will be his people forever. So I said, well, I'm going to have to scrap that interpretation. It doesn't have much going for it in the other uses of that word. So if temporary isn't implied in pitch your tent, what is? I wonder what you'd say. Well, several things come to mind. We have a tent in the Old Testament, the tent of meeting outside the the camp where God met Moses and uh, Joshua. But even there, you'd have to ask, why a tent? I think that tent implies familiarity and closeness and dealings. Um, If you came to a community and you built yourself in the middle of that community a big palace with high walls, you'd be saying something about your desire to have dealings with the people or not. But if you came and pitch your tent in my backyard, I would assume you're going to be using my bathroom. You'd probably sit at my table and eat with me a lot. And I'd, I'd, I'd watch almost everything you did. I'd see you day and night, morning. Tent. He pitched his tent in the backyard of humanity. He means to have dealings with us. He means to be watched by us. He means to be known. He wants to be in our house at our table. So my step number three on our stairway to Christmas is first, God is invisible. Second, before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus, he revealed himself in the law of Moses. And third, God became human So that we could now, step number four, in Jesus, we see God. That's number four. In Jesus, we see God. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And we have beheld, notice the word, beheld, seen his glory, glory of the only as of the only son from the father. Now, mark this. Who is the his here? We have beheld his glory. Preceding phrase is the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his, namely the word's glory, but the word was God, and therefore we have seen God. The invisible God is seen in Jesus. He is God. We have seen God. He's not invisible anymore. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. God came into the world to be seen, be known. Look at verse 18. It says the same thing, basically. No one has ever seen God, but the only Son... Or the only God in other manuscripts, probably the better ones. The only God who's in the bosom, in the lap, in the embrace of the Father. He has made him known. He has told his story. He has embodied him for us to have dealings with in an absolutely unique and wonderful way. You don't have to wonder anymore whether there's a baby in the womb of a woman who's eight weeks pregnant, you don't have to wonder. Because we have uh, thick books giving detailed physiological descriptions. We have books, mainly that parents buy, who have little pictures of every stage of fetal development. They sell them at B. Dalton's and Northwestern. Nobody has to be ignorant of this unseen reality today. And nobody has to be ignorant about God anymore. He has stood forth. He has gone beyond uh, pens and paper and parchment. He's gone beyond cassette tapes. He's gone beyond videos and movies. He's gone beyond live drama. He pitched his tent. He came. He's here. Nobody has to be in doubt about what God looks like anymore. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God. When you see Jesus touch a leper, you see God touch. When Jesus holds a baby, God holds a baby. When Jesus hangs on a cross, God hangs on a cross. Nobody has to be in doubt anymore about if He is or what He's like. What is He like? What is He like? That's the next part of step number four. Because we've got to pick up on the phrase that John repeats and focuses on more than any other phrase in this paragraph. Namely, the phrase grace and truth. Verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 17, look at it. It's repeated. The law was through Moses. Grace and truth, same phrase, came through Jesus Christ. Christ, and in verse 16, you see the phrase grace upon grace. Now, if you step back and then ask this question. John, in writing this paragraph, you've told us that uh, God became flesh in order to make himself known. What's the heart of God? What's the essence of his reality? If you boil everything that's made known about him in the Bible down to the essence, how would you sum it up? And he would say, grace and truth. Truth, let's take that. Truth, what is this? It's reality. It's, it's what is when everything else isn't anymore. You know, what we can see with our eyes is by and large very unreal compared to what we cannot see. You know that? 
It's not easy for 20th century empirical materialistic secular Americans to say that what we see with these eyes is the most unreal part of reality. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is, they've got substance. They are reality. They're going to last. When this flower, Wilson, is gone, God, the maker of beauty, that this flower is intended to replicate, will be there to be known, to be loved, to be related to. When everything you can see is gone, God, the truth, the reality. And Jesus is the revelation of that. I am the way, the truth, and the light. And the second thing that is right at the essence and bottom of who God is, is grace. Grace, the overflow, the lavish, the excessive demonstration of favor toward unworthy sinners like you and me. He pitched his tent in the backyard of a sinner, a harlot. People like me, you. That's where he pitched his tent, and that's grace. And I think this is right at the essence of who God is because there isn't anything more than grace that demonstrates the fullness of his deity. You ever think about this? What demonstrates the fullness of a cup more than anything else? Answer, overflow. It's when God spills on us that we know He's full. And spilling is grace. It's when God overflows with His reality of grace and glory and goodness that we sense we have a great, full God who doesn't need me to fill Him up, but is so surging with infinite energy that He can spend Himself meeting my need for all eternity. That's the meaning of grace. That's why I think it's right at the heart. So his reality, his being, his essence, his firmness, his solidity is offered to us in Jesus. And then on that, this fountain, this effusive volcano of blessing called grace. That's the essence of what we find about God in his son, Jesus Christ. So let me sum up the four steps and then we close on step number five. God is invisible, a problem at first, yes, but then he reveals himself in the law of Moses before he reveals himself in the Lord, and then the fulfillment of that pointer, he becomes human. Grace and truth. And now what is step number five? Let me ask it in a question as we close What's the connection between you and everything we've been saying? What's the connection between the revelation of what God is like and you this morning? Right there with all your worries and all your problems and all your frustrations and all your Christmas expectations. What's the connection? And the answer to that is in verse 16. From His fullness... We have received grace upon grace. And I want you to underline the word receive. So step number five, I would call God came not just to show you grace. So you see it, but give you grace. 
so you can receive it, experience it. He didn't come, and I'm not preaching, to stock your minds with merely accurate thoughts about truth and grace. So that you could go out of here and tell somebody else accurate thoughts about truth and grace. So they can tell somebody else accurate thoughts about truth and grace. Christ came and I'm preaching so that in this closing moment of this service, God would come down and you would receive grace. That you would feel rising up under your feet, the feet of your life, a massive granite foundation called truth and reality. And as 1989, with all of its upheaval, comes to an end, you would be able to say experientially, I've got a rock that'll never let me down. I've got a place to stand in this world that will be there for a thousand ages. And then the other purpose is that God would come down and you would feel grace just kind of flowing over you like water this morning, washing away every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit, taking all your guilt feelings away, taking all the crud in your conscience away so that it's clean, giving you power to help you do what needs to be done and giving you expectations and hope that go way beyond this life and filling you with joy and peace. That's what it's all about. He wants to meet you. He's put his tent right here in the aisle, as it were, or maybe right beside you. And he wants to say, look, I came here. I want to be touched. I want to be felt. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to sit at your table on Christmas Day. I want to be at that tree with you. I want to be at the service with you tonight. I want to be in those hard circumstances when you're talking to that unbelieving relative. I want to be at you when you're all alone. God revealed Himself because He wants you to know that's the way He is this morning. And it ought to just cause us to fill up with joy. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. And the fourth verse goes like this. He rules the world with what? Truth and grace. I wonder where that came from. He became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent in your backyard. Have some dealings with him tonight and tomorrow morning. Welcome him into your celebration. Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope I see you tonight. Goodbye.